welcome to our podcast, Public Health Research and Me. This podcast is led by public partners from FUSE, the Centre for Translational Research in Public Health, and brings together the five Northeast universities of Durham, Newcastle, Northumbria, Sunderland and Teesside in a unique collaboration to deliver world-class research to improve health and well-being and tackle inequalities. FUSE is also a founding member of NIHR School for Public Health Research. So my name's Victoria Bartle and I'm a public partner collaborating with FUSE on creating this podcast and I've been involved with research from a patient and public perspective since I had to stop working in 2016 due to multiple long-term health conditions. I really love being able to influence health and social care research and I know that the input from every public partner makes research more focused on benefiting us all. So today I'm going to be talking with Cassie Muir, who's an NIHR School for Public Health Research doctoral student. God, that's a good title. <laughs> Very jealous, that's lush. As well as a FUSE associate member who's based at Newcastle University. So hi, Cassie. Thanks for joining us. Hello. If you just want to start with telling me a little bit about the projects that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, of course. So hi, everyone. I'm currently a final year PhD student where I focused on young people who experience parental alcohol and or drug use. And my PhD aimed to answer the question, how can we support young people whose parents use substances? So to answer this, firstly, I conducted a qualitative systematic review of young people's experiences of parental substance use, which is looking thoroughly at all the published work and findings where other researchers have chatted to young people on their views and perspectives. And from this, I identified 35 unique studies covering the views of over 700 young people from across 20 different countries, uh, the youngest being four years old and the oldest was 30. So, the yeah, it's like very big, wide uh, range. And the findings from this bit of work then led into my own qualitative field work, where I interviewed 21 young people aged between 14 and 24 from across England and 44 practitioners who provide support to young people who have experienced parental substance use. And this work was really trying to explore young people's experiences of support, their support needs and ideas for future intervention. Oh, wow. That then... sounds absolutely amazing. <laughs> so much work over the past <laughs> Um, no that's brilliant though like I've been reading your research and pre preparation for for this interview and I've just been blown away with like how engaged you are with the topic and I was just wondering like what drew you to children and adolescents and young people's mental health and parental substance abuse yeah so I guess I've, I think I've always just really had an interest in young people's mental health. And when I was younger, I used to always read like Jacqueline Wilson books, which very much kind of depicts the lives of different families and childhood experiences. I also really liked reading sort of self-help books, um, as one of them being, I think it was called Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul, um, which had like little stories from across the world of different kind of things that young people um, felt and how they had experienced things. I then went into psychology at degree level, obviously, you know, piquing my interest more with mental health. And um, during that time, I was a peer mentor with Children Northeast, which is a local charity who support families and children um, 
and I worked one-to-one -one with young people who had experienced some form of adversity to become more confident, independent, and really just supporting their social well-being. Oh, that sounds think, amazing. I think those experiences really shaped kind of me to want to focus on children and families. And then also when I was a teenager, I also experienced substance use within the family and know kind of how it feels to feel alone in that situation and like you can't ask for help and that there isn't much support out there or you just don't know about support so that made me really kind of want to work in this area and then fast forward um, <laughs> an opportunity arose to do this mm -hmm. PhD working with a team I like really admire and got on well with and it just felt quite serendipitous to just go go for it and apply and here we are now oh congratulations that sounds so amazing like just the work that you that you've done like with ch children and young people and it sounds like you just get so much out of that and as a person who's experienced parental substance misuse myself as well it's it is quite isolating and you don't know what's out there and you don't know what's available and like I was a lot older um when it kind of impacted me so it's it I just think your work's absolutely phenomenal um <laughs> so yeah so obviously I'm engaged with research from the public perspective so could you tell me a little bit about how you got the public involved with your research projects and kind of what impact that had on it yeah definitely so I guess I mean first of all I've just really loved collaborating with young people on this project who've got lived experience and it's really kind of grounded my thoughts and driven my analysis and ways of thinking throughout and I've also had the opportunity to work with ADFAM with their chief executive Viv Evans who's been an advisor and supervisor on this project. Can and I just put in there what's ADFAM? Just about to tell you, yeah. <laughs> All right, sorry. No, no, it's fine. So ADFAM <laughs> is the only national charity tackling the effects of alcohol, drug use or gambling on family members and friends. So it's been really great to have the, them involved and their input and um, their knowledge really in this area, in this field and their connections to services. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's brilliant. The start of the project, I was really lucky to collaborate with a great Northeast based charity. So they are called Props Family Recovery Service and they work with um, families and children who've experienced sort of family substance use or uh, friend substance use and they had a group of young people and they sort of used that group as a way of kind of helping advise on my project um, so those young people had lived experiences they already knew each other they knew the support workers and um, they really helped kind of structure the start and kind of come up with the kind of decisions at the start of my PhD. Wow. It helped uh, identify how we could approach young people, so kind of going into services, developing some of the materials, so kind of changing the colours and whatever else other information needed to be on the um, recruitment materials. They also helped come up with the project name, which is SPRING, which is kind of both an acronym and also has a, kind of a connotation to resilience, that kind of bouncing back and new um you know newness to it yeah it's nice and positive it's lovely yeah mm -hmm. yeah good positive word to kind of talk about what were what the research was so in, initially I'd kind of start off and it was looking at obviously support and it was going to be looking at resilience and I took some initial findings to them from 
the other research so the systematic review that I was doing and it was really trying to think about what was missing in the research to date so we looked at kind of other authors themes and trying to see what yeah was if there was any gaps or what I should focus on and what young people had said was that there didn't seem to be much around how that young people can feel different to their peers and how they felt isolated and like they had to keep everything hidden from others and with a separate conversation with um, the public partner from ADFAM she also mentioned that there seemed to be stigma (coughs) seemed to be missing from the current literature in this field and obviously Mm -hmm. that is exactly what the young people were describing the sort of experience of stigma so that really guided the project at the start and helped to explore both resilience and stigma and how that links with support um sorry every response I get is every response I give is just wow wow (laughs) I'm just really enthused about your research it's really exciting and innovative and I know some researchers don't like the systematic review sections of the research projects but just from what you've been saying it was really important to do that and then speak to people with lived experience to see where the gaps were and then they've helped you identify them and now you're doing research that's actually relevant to the people who are living it and going through this every day so that's kind of what we hope for for PPI. Yeah exactly especially that it kind of the young people with lived experience and you know the practice side with ADFAM both having very similar views that something was missing so Mm -hmm. it definitely felt like the way forward but obviously as of everything with COVID and the pandemic that advisory group um, unfortunately had to kind of end um, due to obviously restrictions and everything going on Mm -hmm. but I started up my own group after kind of doing some of the interviews with young people um, I ended up getting a group of young people from across England and we met online to discuss uh, other findings so the interview findings and so on and to start prioritizing some of the intervention ideas they also helped spread the word of the study and got their friends involved in the interviews which was really great to see that the project meant a lot to the young people taking part and that they were you know, wanting other people to take part in it as well. Um, so I think that was, you know, really, really useful. Yeah, no, that's amazing. They, You can see that they obviously were engaged with it and impacted by it. And especially if they wanted to carry on doing it through COVID and lockdown and everything. Like there was so much stress and, and just, oh, it was just an awful period for everybody. And then for these kids to want to be involved is just phenomenal to show like the impact of what you're doing, that it does actually touch people's lives like really importantly. Yeah. The young person advisory group also kind of changed my perspective on resilience. So I think that was mainly that they just didn't really like the term and they said it was kind of overused and to them it usually meant and in their kind of experience that it was young people doing well at school and that's kind of how they sort of perceived what it is to be resilient um but to them they thought of resilience in terms of kind of surviving versus thriving and professionals need to determine whether a behavior was then the young person surviving or thriving and I guess as a kind of example of that so a young person may be seen as resilient at school when they're doing well getting their homework done getting good grades 
yet the young people had said that that may also be a survival technique which needs to be looked at so is the young person trying to seem like they're doing well so that they don't get singled out are they putting it all their effort into schoolwork because they don't want to focus on home life so they're getting doing their homework just so they can they've got some time to focus on something else so what may seem like resilience to the outside world may actually be the young person trying to survive which can then limit their opportunities for support and can, you know, continue to be a hidden, um, you know, just thinking about it like that. And from their perspective really helped me kind of think about resilience as well in terms of this and how that also links to stigma and, you know, trying to make it seem like there, may, there, there might not be any issues at home or there might not be any problems. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, def- it's definitely been absolutely fabulous having them involved and they helped uh, present the findings of the project to over 100 practitioners online they shared really oh fantastic yeah. we had a big sort of fuse um ad fam in the school of public health research um online event where it was well attended and then yeah they shared their experiences they helped me kind of develop some of the workshop activities and one young person from that group has reflected that the group just being a part of that group she's realized that she wasn't alone in her experiences there were other people that had similar experiences and she'd never had that opportunity so that I kind of it gave her that opportunity to meet new people yeah oh that that's so fantastic what you've just been talking about kind of makes me think about like masking behaviors of people with autism um and different like neurodiversity um trying to behave in a certain way to fit in with society because that's what's expected of you and then you go home and kind of it all spills out or you if you're in a situation where you're dealing with substance misuse at home then you you don't have the opportunity for it to all spill out at all and so stigma is going to be a, a, a huge factor um in how we address this as society and like how we approach it to help children and young people so what kind of conclusions did you come to then? How, how are we meant to improve things? Lots of different ways. And I think there's definitely lots that needs to be done. And the majority of kind of interventions and support currently um, focus on the parents and trying to reduce the risk to the child. So trying to, you know, improve or reduce sort of drug use or alcohol use. And, you know, there is definite need for that but we also need to think about well, how can we support the young people as well because my research was finding that young people um in times when their parents maybe weren't using or they were in treatment that can actually be really anxiety provoking for young people and they start to worry about is it going to happen again so that they still you know they still need to have the support in place as well as that um there are very limited number of evidence-based interventions for young people currently which are very kind of low effectiveness so they don't really have that great of improvements for young people and that's not to say that there's some really great support services across the UK because there definitely are um, and they're doing really great work with very little funding and I guess that is one issue that you know does need improving um, there's currently no requirement for local authorities to offer support to young people who experience parental substance use and therefore service provision is patchy across England 
depending on which local authority you live in it depends if there's support for a young person and I think that's just not enough that's not good enough no Um, that's really surprising to me I didn't realize that there was no like need not need but there was no service provision that you had to (laughs) to provide like that just seems yeah it doesn't seem right to me (laughs) no so some obviously some areas really great commissioners who commission services have got like lots of access whereas there's other areas that don't have that and a lot of the services are generally quite siloed so they're kind of working on their own not really linking up with other services in the country and especially to kind of learn from that and to find out you know what works what doesn't how can we engage commissioners and things like that um so I think more needs to be done with kind of you know the networking and sharing of resources across services too I think one of the kind of key areas as well with my research and that I've tried to focus on is that young people are not kind of passive in their experiences that trying to recognize that young people are showing agency and tenacity to find ways to support themselves to protect their siblings to try to control the uncontrollable and this is really usually without any formal support in place they're doing this for themselves um and it's to kind of not take away from that and to really make sure that support that they can access allows them to you know exercise their agency and choice so for instance young people as kind of intervention ideas or resources had said that it would be good to develop digital um, applications or websites that young people can access, especially teenagers and young adults. They can access them at any time of the day. They can choose what topics or sessions they want to go through to hear about other people's stories that are similar to them and that this could act as a gateway to in-person support. So to help reduce the stigma of speaking out and access and support to kind of, you know, dip their toe in as such, or it could be used alongside, um, you know, in-person practitioner support as just a way to um, help engage. There are obviously issues with um, digital poverty and, you know, things like that, but I think it's more of a suite of interventions and more needs to be done in terms of, supporting young people I guess if there's no like necessary provision from local councils that a lot of it will be delivered by charities and like third sector providers so kind of ideal world scenario what do you see the role of say like you were talking about digital poverty and um other forms of exclusion and I'm assuming that like the criminal justice system would come in at some point and education is going to be massively important for for like teachers to help identify children who are at risk but also just society in general to make sure that we're able to identify these these issues and put something into place to support these children and young people um so I'll give you a magic wand (laughs) here you go (laughs) What would you like to see in terms of like structures and systemic systems to to help tackle these issues? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we definitely have to create sort of um, resilient systems around young people. And, you know, a lot of my work focuses on what can we do for young people? But within that, you know, they've they've also talked about things with regards to, you know, system change and um, poverty and um you know having fairer access to resources 
And I think in general, with regards to sort of what the young people had said as something that would be useful to them is training for other um, professionals or adults and who may encounter young people or children. So within the health and social care sector, within the justice system, within the educational system around, you know, parental substance use, the impacts to young people, how young people cope, what that may look like, that sort of, you know, the thriving versus surviving um, examples with regards to the educational system and to really try and take a trauma-informed approach when supporting young people, you know, to think about um, non-stigmatising language, respectful relationships, you know, trying to create safe spaces for young people to open up um, and allowing them to kind of help make decisions about their own support. So I think that was really one way that that it was a prioritized intervention from both practitioners and young people that doesn't isn't directly for young people but is something that they want that would actually be really helpful and to kind of you know try start and have that sort of systemic change um for the best and I guess within sort of educational um establishments a lot of the I guess the, the highest priority for young people and practitioners was to develop more educational resources for children and young people so this was very much to kind of co-produce them with young people they wanted it as early as primary school like early prevention have these conversations early um try to reduce that stigma from a young age you know if it's talked about in primary school talked about through secondary school it becomes more of a norm and a, you know a dialogue within the schools um for both those experiencing it and those who aren't and i'm currently working with a national charity to develop uh, resources to be used within schools and that's really a focus on the emotional uh, impact of living with parental substance use and how that may show up or not show up in school so that's going to be an add-on to kind of normal kind of curriculum and you know teachers can use it and play the video and I think it'll be useful in terms of other areas it doesn't just have to be parental substance use because we're focusing on the emotional impact and the emotional and social well-being so I think that a really good way of getting into schools and trying to change that system that yeah that sounds absolutely phenomenal like the impact that that could have um to just reduce the stigma and to to normalize it like you said to to normalize different situations so yeah not just parental substance uh, misuse but anything that's kind of seen as out of the norm that then becomes stigmatized because you don't talk about it so if we open the the um open the the lines of communication then it could just have a, a huge impact on people's well-being and just general mental health, yeah. A young person had said that, you know, if someone just had those conversations earlier on at primary school, secondary school, that they wouldn't have felt, they would have felt less alone. They may not have accessed support. They may not have, you know, gone down formal support route, but then they would have felt less kind of that internal stigma or internal shame and they would have felt like actually somebody cared you know 
somebody was talking about it somebody wanted to help and I think that's really important for these kind of conversations that you know it might not increase uh, referrals to services but actually it might decrease the sort of internal stigma and shame that the young people might um, face. Yeah it just like you say normalizing it means that you can talk to your friends about it and you won't experience that stigma but yeah knowing that it it is a thing that it exists in the world that it's not just you and and your family or your environment or whatever that it's it's bigger than that and there's other people who are experiencing it I mean you you talk about all the different intersecting factors contributing to uh, stigma and discrimination and from a disabled person's point of view I find that so interesting because you can just see how socioeconomics and gender and age and, and loads of other things intersect to form like inequalities. So what do you see as the biggest impact with regards to your research on like social inequalities? Definitely there are like many intersecting factors for um, young people who experience parental substance use. And it very much links to another project that I'm working on, which is called Oracle which is overcoming adverse childhood experiences. And that's sort of focusing on parental substance use, parental mental health, um, domestic violence and abuse and poverty and how those kind of overlap. And there are lots of kind of overlapping and compounding um, issues which can all lead to stigma and discrimination. And colleagues on that project found that poverty can amplify children's experiences of these adversities which can lead to kind of worsening outcomes, especially with poor mental health. And that, you know, more needs to be done with regards to um, policies around poverty and um, improving financial uh, situations. And especially with the kind of, you know, the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis at the moment is these things are really going to impact the most vulnerable um, first. So definitely more needs to be done. But and, you know, and young people had described times when they not only kind of stigmatized or bullied for um, having sort of parents who use substances and the stigma that surrounds substance use, but also because of the financial situation of their family. You know, if they can't, um, if they're not wearing the best clothing or they're not having the right equipment for school, definitely more needs to be done. And uh, Children Northeast, as an example, uh, they're doing something they've called poverty proofing. And an example of this within the sort of school system is by kind of going in and making sort of the school aware of how they might be unintentionally promoting stigma or limiting young people's access or opportunity to participation. So kind of including how they deliver free school meals, how they plan non-school uniform days, um, especially if it's kind of with a donation, making that a bit more like in a bucket instead of kind of going around every person in the class or having a, um, a, a non-matching sock day. So instead of kind of, you know, non-school uniform and trying to think about how that kind of can impact on PE kits as well and activities outside of school um, and really trying to, trying to, you know, promote a, an environment where there isn't stigma because of the poverty and, you know, that can support lots more families than just sort of looking at it from the parental substance use. Um, there's obviously a lot of other... Uh, families who would benefit from that and children who'd benefit so I definitely think that's kind of 
from the research that I know so far is the kind of biggest impact. Right. Well, I've just realised that I've been stigmatising it all the way through in my language. And you, you should have challenged me because uh, I've been saying substance misuse all the way through and it's substance use, isn't it? Sorry. So I apologise and I'm learning. So, <laughs> so parental also, substance use. Yeah, there's always, I mean, that. yeah, it happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's been it's been aware, isn't it? And acknowledging yeah. that. I think that's that's another way of kind of moving forward as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I apologise for that, and thank you for teaching me something today. So, look into the future. Kind of, where do you see the areas for further research in in this kind of area of study? And have the children and young people that you've been involved with pointed out stuff that you want to look at in the future? Yeah. So I think I mean one of the main ones that I haven't really explored is that I think more needs to be done regarding younger children, um, especially as sort of primary school age was, um, you know, prioritised as a as a, one of those uh, main areas that we should be intervening um, at. So I think more needs to be done with kind of including younger children, getting their opinions on how we can do this, um, kind of, you know, going to primary schools and teachers and staff and thinking about how we could, you know, utilize some of these methods and educational resources within primary schools um and I think you know thinking about the emotional impact could be one way of doing that um because there could be lots of different uh children experiencing different types of emotions for different reasons um I also think that further research is needed exploring that system-wide change so you know thinking about tackling policies and the cost of living and how that can impact outcomes for children and young people um and then also just needing to further develop and co-produce resources for young people within the educational system or like digital apps or websites and think about you know how best is that accessible for the young person and then sort of pilot it and feasibility test it um across sites so I think they're the kind of main things but definitely kind of thinking about how could we target and get into primary schools and start that conversation with younger children. It sounds like you're going to be busy for the rest of your career <laughs> with all of this, <laughs> fixing all of these problems for us. Um, so if you had one message for our listeners to, to take away, what would it be? I think, put simply, it would be to be kind. And you don't always know what somebody has gone through or has been through. And there's just there is so much sort of hidden trauma and hidden things that people don't talk about um, that we should all just be being kind and compassionate to people and not using kind of stigmatizing or derogatory language or views. And I guess if we could help just one person to not feel alone today by just engaging in this conversation, then I think that's worth celebrating because, you know, you're not alone. There are people who have experienced very similar things and there are people who want to help and hopefully we can you know develop even more services and interventions that can be useful for young people as well well that's that's just such an amazing message to end on that was lovely (laughs) thank you so much for your time Cassie and good luck with all of your research in the future I've thoroughly enjoyed learning about it and from my perspective just to see that people will be helped 
and that they are being helped is just amazing and really touches my heart so well done and thank you so much well thank you for having me and letting me ramble at you for the past 20 or so minutes (laughs) (laughs) not rambling at all it's been amazing it's been really really interesting thank you thank you Victoria So if you're a fan of our Public Health Research and Me podcast, please subscribe on your preferred streaming platform. Let us know how we're doing with the rating or review and share with your friends, family, colleagues and networks. Thank you and we'll see you next time.